0: Well, good afternoon and welcome to this event on South Africa, growth, jobs, and the future of democracy. My name is Jerry Norris, and I'm a senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute. We are pleased to have at this event uh, Ann Bernstein. She is the executive director of the Center for Development and Enterprise in South Africa. It's a think tank that's focused on development policy, inclusive economic growth, and democratic, democratic institutions. Previously, Anne was a member of the transition team and the board of the, of the Development Bank for Southern Africa. She's also the author of the award-winning book, The Case for Business in Development Economies. Before Anne speaks, I wanted to comment briefly on my own experience in South Africa in the area of jobs and growth. During my last visit to Cape Town and in dinner with the Minister of Finance, he recounted his experience in trying to bring manufacturing jobs to South Africa. He was a senior government official that was to sign off on a license to BMW of Germany to build an automobile assembly plant. The minister said, I was old school in my thinking. Wow, I thought. An automobile assembly plant? That would mean thousands of jobs, right? But 18 months later, He learned that the BMW plant was fully operational with 230 employees, including management. Everything about the BMW plant was automated and operated via robotics. It was technologically intensive, but not labor intensive. I'm sure Ann might have some similar experiences to share with us in this regard. So let's hear from her, and then we'll have a short Q&A afterward.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be at the Hudson Institute. It's my first time, um, and uh, I'm delighted to be here. So I run a business-funded, totally independent policy think tank in South Africa, and our job is to tackle the big issues, how to get growth, how to fix our education system, and make a constructive contribution to the challenges that face a complex developing country with a complicated history. Now... The last two years, we've spent a lot of time thinking about growth in South Africa. Firstly, we didn't think that enough people – some echo here – we didn't think enough people were, were talking about growth, which in our view is the absolute foundation of everything we can try and achieve in the country. But we also wanted the South African business community, never mind the government, to focus much more clearly on priorities for growth. So I'm going to give you a feel of the seven documents that we've released on the growth agenda, priorities for mass employment and inclusion, all of which are available for those of you who need to cure your insomnia. They're all available on our website, uh, as are a, a whole host of other documents on South Africa. let me start by saying that there's no doubt that over the last 22 years the country has notched up some significant achievements, But I'm not going to talk about those today because South Africa today is in very serious trouble, and it's that I want to focus on and what to do about it that seems to us to be of paramount importance. Let me just orient you with three facts that in our view really matter. Too many South Africans are poor. Something between 35 to 54% of our population of about 52, 53 million are poor people. I'm talking about very little money in terms of where the poverty line is drawn. So anywhere between 18 to 27 million South Africans live on very little money every month. Too many South Africans are unemployed. Very conservative figure, seven and a half million people. It's probably closer to nine million at the moment. And too many South African adults do not have a school leaving certificate of any value. 19 million. So if you want to talk about poverty, unemployment, and inequality, those are the facts. Now as I said, despite many achievements, the country is in deep trouble. And there are many kinds of trouble that we're in. What I'm going to talk about today is economic and social problems. Everybody in South Africa will tell you they want growth. They want jobs, they want growth. But actually the problem is, they want many other things as well. And some of those things undermine the prospects for growth and employment. So let's look at employment. We're a complete global outlier. It's not like we just have an unemployment problem since 2008. We have a structural unemployment problem that in our view is caused by government policy. So most countries, some 60% of the workforce is employed. In South Africa, it's about 42%. It's a massive gap. When we became a democracy, many people advising government and in government said, what we want is a high-skill, high-wage growth strategy. That's fine if you have a high-skilled population. The problem is, we don't. Because of decades of apartheid and terrible education for many black South Africans, the vast majority, and because the democratic government has struggled to fix the education system, some people say they've made it worse. I don't think you could make that case, but it's a terrible education system for the vast majority of poorer people South Africa does not have a high skill wage force, workforce. And we're really saying that you have to create jobs and have an economy that creates jobs for the workforce you actually have. Not the one you wish you had or you fantasize you have, but the one you actually have. And that means. Our economy has to fire on all cylinders, and we're doing all sorts of things to make that very difficult at the moment, so we're heading for 0% growth. But a country like South Africa needs to open the door to low-skill manufacturing. We need to be as labor-intensive an economy as possible, and we have two documents on that in our series of seven, on how you can do this, what laws need to be changed, but how South Africa can think about low-skill manufacturing. The location of manufacturing is changing worldwide. There are estimated to be some 80, 86 million jobs that are going to move out of China. South Africa could just get a small fraction of those. This could have an enormous impact, but we have to change laws, We have to change attitudes. We have the notion that South Africans should only have decent jobs. The problem with that, as our former Minister of Finance once put it, he said, the more adjectives you put in front of the word jobs, the less jobs you're going to get. And that's exactly what's happened. So, we're a more capital-intensive economy than we should be, and yet we have millions and millions of people who through no fault of their own do not have skills. And so we're making this a very strong push. The country needs high growth, but it also needs to be much more labor intensive and that means we need to change a range of legal regulations and laws so as to enable the private sector to employ people at what are low wages, but we would argue that a low wage is a lot better than no wage at all. So that's a very important issue for us. Education is of fundamental importance and South Africa performs very badly in terms of basic education. We come last in a whole lot of international tests with respect to maths and science, and there are countries much poorer than us that do better. You have to ask yourself why it is that countries like South Africa, India, and Brazil all have really terrible basic education systems. And one of the big causes is that we have trade unions that frankly are out of control. They have far too much power. They appoint teachers and principals and nobody's prepared to deal with this politically. Of course there are other issues, training for teachers and so on, but in systems where teachers don't teach or even come to school on Mondays and Fridays but don't get fired, the situation gets is very bad indeed. So that's a second sort of big area. We're also saying, and this would be new, no South African growth plan has or growth strategy has really focused on this. We're saying... A country that's over 62% urbanized needs to now put cities front and center of a growth strategy. Most economists don't think very much about where growth happens, but it happens mainly in cities. And this is very important for South Africa, we are sort of, like India, we're a reluctant urbanizer, even today as a democracy. Somehow all these urban people, these urban powerful people think, it's fine that I'm in the city, but I'd really prefer that all those other people stayed in the rural areas. And this is crazy. This is inevitable, and the key challenge is to accept the reality of urbanization and to manage cities where the population is going to grow from natural birth and from in-migration, and they're going to be poor. You need to look at how you make your cities inclusive of poor people, opportunity rich, so that they can improve their circumstances and get ahead. Um, another important issue we're focused on is you can put this negatively or positively. I like to put it this way the government likes to say, we really think rather reluctantly, but we've concluded that the private sector has to create the jobs and growth for South Africa. Terrific. But the next cabinet minister will say, you know, the private sector are a bunch of lying thieves, vultures, and all sorts of other polite terms. And so what we're saying is, you can't be anti-business and hope for growth and jobs. To put it more positively, We need a competitive market economy. We need an effective state that understands markets and how to regulate them for competition and growth. And you need to open up the South African economy, which means competition, so that new firms can get in. Black South Africans can start firms and find a niche in the economy and grow. So that has consequences across our economy where we have a very large number of state-owned enterprises. We have an active competition commission and we would support that, but this should apply across the entire economy, not just the private part of the economy. So we're saying a number of things about what South Africa has to do. And in many ways, you could say that you could argue with me and say, hey, since we became a democracy, we've created one of the most redistributive states in the developing world. That's true, we have. Some 17 million, about a third of our population, get one or other kind of government grant. We provide grants for children under the age of 18 who are living in poverty. We have old age grants. We have free housing. We have all sorts of things that we've done through a redistributive tax and sort of welfare system. The problem is most of this helps ameliorate poverty. It's not a strategy to steadily eliminate poverty. And to do that, you have to have a job. You have to get your toe into the formal economy, if not your whole foot, so that you can start learning skills and move up. And that's why labor intensity in the South African economy is absolutely vital. Um, so I think I'm going to run out of time. Let me end this by saying that, among many other things, we would you could summarize what we're arguing as follows. Without growth, the South African democratic Constitution is at risk. I'd be happy to talk a bit more about that if you want. This is a difficult country to run at the best of times. Without growth, people are going to get very angry with each other and not see how they get ahead and get more um, and a better life in, in this society. So we're saying... The country needs rapid and inclusive growth. What do we mean by that? We think it has to be urban-led, must be private sector-driven, must be enabled by a competent state, and it needs to be targeted at mass employment. I'll stop there. Thanks.
0: Open to uh, questions. Remember that there are no uh, inappropriate questions; only answers that may not be direct. Here we go, right there. I'm Barry Wood. I write for MoneyWeb.co.za, and I really thank you for these remarks. This is a debate that must happen in South Africa. But what's your prediction on the municipal elections coming up next week? Do you think there's any chance that the Democratic Alliance could win in Nelson Mandela Bay, Or, Swanee? Take a few or do
1: you want me to deal with it one by one? Yes. Well, my view is that the local government elections on the 3rd of August are the most important le- elections since South Africa became a democracy. There is a real chance of a much greater competitive, democratic party political system emerging. I I think nobody knows what's going to happen. I know what I would like to happen. Um, The one polling company that is around, it's not like America, the poll of polls. There's one company doing a poll that I know of. um, And those results, for what they're worth, are looking very interesting indeed. It's possible that the ANC will lose its majority, go below 50% in at least two additional metropolitan areas, Pretoria and Nelson Mandela Bay or Port Elizabeth, in addition to the holding, the Cape Town metropolitan area which they've had for 10 years. Now there's some people who say Johannesburg is also going to uh, the ANC will go below 50% there. This would be a very big change. It's possible, it's in play, but I don't have any crystal ball here. So I would say two places looking really possible, possibly four others. Four, possibly two additional, the East Rand, Ekurhuleni, and Johannesburg, but these are a much bigger ask. The big question is, so, rather than future-gazing um, for the sake of MoneyWeb, um, I think the big issues are these. How big a shock does the ANC need to get for it to have serious implications within the party and the leadership? I don't have an answer to that, but that's the big question.
0: back
2: my name is Yaya Fanusi with the United States of Africa 2017 Project Task Force. I don't ask questions. I make a quick comment. Growth will never happen in South Africa the way you all want it. Unless South Africa is part of the United States of Africa Federation, we'll launch the campaign next year, and I hope your group will support us. If you think you can go it alone, the only thing you can accomplish economically is the st- status of Mexico 40 years ago.
1: to comment. so uh, This is an interesting view. It's not mine. Um, I, I think South Africa has, you have to work really hard to get the South African economy down to almost 0% growth, which is what we've, we're achieving. This is an economy with enormous potential, with a lot of highly skilled people with an entrepreneurial class that isn't perfect, but is able to produce world-class companies with world-class productivity levels. And I think that it's politics that's holding the country back. Of course, the 2008 didn't help us. Thanks very much, everybody. Um, the world economy is not exactly great for South Africa. China slowing down. All these are factors, but the real issue is South Africa has made itself a really uncompetitive economy, and these are choices, so that's the bad news. The good news is, these are choices we made as a society. We can make different choices, which I think could get the country growing at a much more rapid rate, and we can turn around a whole lot of things, and this economy is obviously not an island, We're trading a lot more with Africa, and that can grow. But what happens in South Africa is determined by South Africans, and we can turn around this economy with the political will to do that.
3: Uh, I spent a little time in South Africa, 30 40 years ago, I guess, Uh, and at that time, the British had not turned over the real authority to the the South Africans, Uh, South Africans really had little opportunity to participate. I'm not saying uh, the, 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 when I was there, the, the problems that they faced of poverty uh, had not been dealt with adequately. And I, I haven't followed it recently, but uh, it, what was required was very bold and and. Thoughtful approach of turning authority really over to the natives and, and helping them make the decisions, but not rec- as when I when I left, the, the British made all the decisions.
1: So, um... So South Africa today is a very different place. Firstly, we're a democracy where everybody has a vote, and I'm a committed democrat. Um, Poverty has been created by the apartheid government, where black South Africans were treated appallingly, and millions of people were denied opportunities for a very long time. has consequences today for example if you're a black South African and you wanted to start a business you are free to do that today but your family has not been able to accumulate resources or capital in the way an ordinary white middle-class family has done so you're disadvantaged it's not like your parents could give you a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars to help so The consequences of apartheid are still with us, and some of these have been compounded by bad decisions by the democratic government. Some good decisions have been made, some unintended consequences have followed. For example, we now have a a housing policy where if you're a poorer South African in the urban areas or towns, you can get... uh, a publicly funded house. The problem is most of those houses have been built where land is cheap. So we've pushed people even further away from opportunity without intending to. So this compound of old policies and their legacies and new policies, some bad, some with unintended consequences, makes South Africa's challenges difficult. On the other hand, We're a population of 54 million, and I think it would be reasonably easy to turn the situation around if you had the right kind of policies, attitudes, and you have a population, the vast majority of whom now are committed to a non-racial democracy. I think that's a really big achievement which a new government or a new approach could build upon. Hello. Um, Very late one night, I saw a picture of a huge presidential plane. And they said for South Africa, it was like the size of a football field with every possible amenities. And they talked about how much money was being spent on that. Was that just me suffering from insomnia, to see that much money spent on something that doesn't really benefit the people there in South Africa at all? Have you seen that or had any experience with uh, what I'm talking about? You weren't, unfortunately, you weren't uh, having a nightmare. Um, The country is living through some aspects of a nightmare. So we currently have a situation where the president would like a new jet, and there is a lot of opposition to to this and the cost of this in a context of almost no growth and much higher priorities. We subsidize the national airline at great expense because it is not well run, and it's actually a very good airline in its international um, flights and it goes all over the place, and many people would wonder why that's not an option in addition to the airplanes that the president has and that the army has. So that is a big debate in South Africa right at the moment. And of course, some of you might know, the rural homestead of our president uh, happens to have had a lot of public money spent on it, and there's been an enormous controversy about that, and I'm pleased to say that our constitutional court was asked to give a a ruling on what was appropriate and how much should he pay some money back. And the full constitutional court of the country, including the chief justice who was appointed by the president, gave what was a momentous ruling for South Africa, saying that the president has to pay, not only has to pay money back for this, abuse of public funds, and they're currently deciding how much he should pay, Uh, but the Constitutional Court took a very strong view on the way in which the president of the country had in fact undermined the country's constitution. So you couldn't have had a stronger statement from an independent judiciary, which is one of South Africa's great strengths and one of the most hopeful signs for a turnaround and for the future.
3: Thank you very much. Um, And thank you for your presentation, Anne. I was wondering if you could say a bit more about the whole job creation concept that you outlined there in specifics because As you know, uh, and many of us who have worked in development know, this is a key problem in many, many countries, the whole question of how you create jobs, and how you create jobs in urban areas, because the reluctant urbanization that you speak of is also common in many other countries in the world. So I would really appreciate some
1: insights. (laughs) Well, I'm pleased you asked, because this is my favorite topic. (laughs) And um, I'm currently engaged in heated debate with many people in South Africa. So as I said, we have a devastating unemployment rate and we we have an economy that when it's growing, even when it's growing, in the 2000s, the South African economy grew at almost 5% per annum for three years. This was partly because of China and commodities, and but some other good factors as well. We created over two million new jobs. There are all sorts of people on the left who want to say, oh, this is jobless growth. That's nonsense. The facts are we created two million new jobs. When you look at those jobs, they're disproportionately for skilled people. So some were for unskilled people, but a disproportionate number when you consider the population were for skilled people. And so you have to think it's not just growth that South Africa needs. You've got to change the way this economy functions. On the one hand, you wanted to fire on all cylinders. So, of course, our world-class, sophisticated sector must continue automating and doing all the things you need to do economically to grow. Yes, of course but we've got to look at where the labor-intensive sectors are and what are the barriers to them expanding. So, for example, in tourism, an area traditionally where you can get a lot of um, low-skilled jobs, because we protect our national airline, we don't deregulate and allow charter flights from Europe, where you could dramatically increase the numbers of tourists, but that's not on the agenda. So that's just one example. So there are a number of areas where if you went into it, you could create more labor-intensive jobs. We are saying we're particularly focusing on manufacturing, partly because our role as an organization is to tackle the tough issues, where there aren't any champions, and we're saying this is absolutely vital. Now there is no developing country that has managed to move from desperate, feudal, rural poverty to the kind of middle class lifestyle we all would want for South Africa without going through a phase of what you could call low-skill factory jobs. That's what Southeast Asia has done. That's what a lot of countries have done. In fact, it's hard to think of any country which hasn't you know, got massive oil In the Western world, that hasn't done that. Um, Whether it's America, Sweden, Britain, coal, coal mining, and all sorts of things. Now, there's one employer in South Africa that is allowed to create very low-wage jobs. It's our little secret, and that's the government. We have a public works program where we pay a very low-wage About, I'm trying to think in dollars. Depends on the exchange rate, but it's about $7, $8 a day. So these are people who are desperate, who have no jobs. They can come and get a temporary part-time job with a public work scheme, cleaning up litter, doing those sorts of things. There's almost no training. It's not a permanent job, and it's it's part-time. It's for three months or whatever. We're saying, if the government's allowed to do that, why can't the private sector create jobs at that rate, It's the very lowest, and higher? Because then we're globally competitive. We can compete with the Philippines. We can compete with uh, Laos and Bangladesh and Vietnam and various other places. Probably not at the absolute lowest level, but then South Africa's got much more infrastructure. So, one of our proposals, which is available on our website, is we've looked at Port Elizabeth, a coastal city, Nelson Mandela Bay, it's called, out of sort of not very big metropolitan area, which has not one, but two underutilized ports. And we're saying, Why don't we experiment with an export processing zone for low-skill manufacturing in that area? We're not asking for subsidies. There's actually a big zone there that's completely underpopulated, so a lot of the facilities are there already. You've got the port. You have really quite good South African infrastructure compared to other developing countries. And all we're asking for is we're saying, allow employers to agree wages and working conditions with their employees. This is vital in the textile industry. If you want to compete, the Gap or the Banana Republic phone you up and say, I want 40,000 purple t-shirts by next Tuesday. You have to be able to work 24 hours to meet that tender if you want it. So we're saying South Africa should experiment with that and other ideas, um, assembly of toys and low-skill kinds of things, because that's what our population, our workforce looks like. Now lots of people say, oh, you want slave wages for people and they attack me in South Africa on this. My response is, why does nobody ever talk about the absolute devastation and horror?" horrible lives of people who have no hope of employment. That's the comparison. It's low wage or no wage. At least in a private sector factory, you've got your baby toe into the modern economy. You will get some training. You might start by sewing the label on my T-shirt, but in time you could make the whole T-shirt, and one day you could aim to manage other people making the T-shirt. You're on a ladder up. And that's what's happened in China. That's what's happened in a lot of other places. But South Africa has historically said no. So this is a big policy battle. We're trying to find allies. And I'm certainly hopeful after the local government elections that we might find some new allies in Port Elizabeth to help strengthen our voice in terms of Let's try this out because the fact is when I'm attacked by the unions and others and I respond, well, that's fine. You don't have to agree with me, but what is your proposal? We've had 22 years. We are the world's outlier on unemployment. What are you putting on the table? And I don't hear very much. A quick question, comparing South Africa with countries like Dubai, um, what policies do you think that Dubai hasn't adapted that that is different from Dubai and that is leading, that's making Dubai grow, not South Africa? Have you looked at other countries, how they've managed to attract businesses, like getting rid of the corporate income tax or... Um minimum wage laws and things like that. Uh, are you guys thinking of any policies uh, that that makes you know uh, South Africa more business friendly? Has there been any policies in the past that has worked, and has there been any policies that hasn't worked and made Africa to zero growth as it is today? Thank you. We've done a we've done a study. It's available on our website, looking at special economic zones all over the world. The important thing is most of them fail, so there's no guarantee. And we've tried to extract what are the, the lessons from the successful ones, and and that's available. Um, and I've given you one or two examples of what those might be. Uh, the key is, you know. <laughs> you can't make the whole country like this, if you want a special zone to try and lead the way, as they did in China or elsewhere, you've got to make sure it's really special. (laughs) It has to attract investors. In our view, it should be run by a private sector operator, not a bureaucrat, and then you need the freedom to contract. So that would be the one part of the answer. The second is we have a whole document I haven't discussed where we talk about what has to change in South Africa in order to get much higher growth rates. Um, Now you can get that information from many of our banks, from our treasury, which is very good, and you can read all about that. What we decided to focus on was what they don't focus on, which is yes, you need an enabling business environment, and these are the things you need to do, but we also have to look at, and I think this is a big issue for South Africa, India, and a number of other developing countries. You have to look at what is your policy of redress, affirmative action, if you like, for people, large, a majority in South Africa, an enormous number in India, who have historically been discriminated against for decades, if not centuries, and who start in a different place from you? And it's not enough to just say, OK, we've removed all the restrictions, everybody's equal before the law, you can all vote now, get on with it very tempting to say that but I don't think you can do that so South Africa's had a big program of black economic empowerment with very different aspects and India has an enormous program for the untouchables, the Dalit caste, for other castes who now compete to be other backward classes, a truly appalling idea now the consequence of some of these things is been be negative for growth and for the whole disadvantaged population, not just what the Indians like to call the creamy layer. And we're saying this. We're saying many people talk about affirmative action issues in a place like South Africa in one silo, and then they'll talk about growth in another silo. And we're saying this is not working. You have to think hard about... What are the redress measures that would not just lead to elite enrichment or crony capitalism or appointments of people to run institutions who are not the right people in terms of merit? How do you think about growth and redress measures so that they support each other? and that you are bringing in millions of people, not just an elite. I think that's a challenge. We don't have a simple answer. We're saying this should be one of South Africa's big priorities, and we have some suggestions on how to do that. Uh, So you're asking, so there's a document to read, and we're making some suggestions on the road forward, but we don't have very specific... We have time for one more question.
3: Uh,
2: thank you very much. I'm a member for UNESCO Task Force. One of our objectives is how to create jobs in services industries. Uh, my question is more specific regarding Japan. In this sector of services industry, cultural creative industry, Japan has been working during... 10 years. And this year they will launch in uh, October, from 90 to 20 to October, what is called a summit, World Economic Summit, the first ever for this type of industries, cultural creative industries. Now, you mentioned local elections. Uh, Japan is probably the most successful country, which has been working during the last 10 years, even more, to create local jobs based on local cultural and natural identities. How would you address this? You are going to have local elections, I understand. Uh, Are local areas immune from the central government policies, or uh, more or less immune, in order to engage together with UNESCO European Commission, U.S. Japan, in local development with specific, specifically addressing creating local jobs? I hope it makes sense. Let
1: me answer two ways. So South Africa is a unitary state, a constitutional settlement involved sort of not state governments, provincial governments, which are agencies, but with their own legislature, and then a local government sort of level. But we're not a federation. We are arguing for greater powers for the largest metropolitan areas, where the most people live, where the most growth takes place, and the most employment takes place. We're saying we need more powers there and we're actually calling for directly elected mayors there, um, which would be a big change in the system. So there have been powers allocated to local government and it's differentiated. We're saying more. I'm not quite sure about your question. If you, Local governments have some power to do things, that they are bound by national laws. It's not like America at all. Um, And if I understand you're talking about local culturally related jobs, there is talk about this in South Africa. I'm not an expert on this at all. My suspicion is it's small in number. The potential is small, but I really am not an expert.
0: Uh, Well... I think that concludes our, our events today. Let's give uh, Anne a little thank you very much.